Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, April 13th, 2011. Is there any superstition about Wednesday the 13th? <laughs> I, I, I don't think there is. one of those days where I've been suffering from a low-grade headache for most of the day. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said and done out there. We like to chronicle them. Some we laugh at, some we cry at. Other stuff we shake our head at, and some stuff we rejoice at. It's just, this is the type of program that will make you laugh, make you cry, make you weep, <laughs> gnash your teeth, and jump up and down for joy. It's uh, it's one, one very interesting re- emotional ride, if you, if you would. <sighs> so let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. You know, I, if you've been following me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that I've been... Uh, grinding on the uh, on the whole evolution thing never ceases to amaze me that uh, there's a bunch of people out there that are trying to uh, find a a way to embrace both evolution and christianity and i it just can't be done it it no it it's it <laughs> it can't be done in fact i was uh, on the phone today with uh, the folks that uh, do the scheduling for the um uh, radio interviews for the guys who work for Answers in Genesis, uh, Ken Ham's organization, not too far from us. They're out in Cincinnati. And uh, next week sometime I'll be uh, interviewing one of the mucky mucks, the uh, scientific guys uh, from Answers in Genesis, and uh, be, uh, well, let's just say using that to answer the biologos guy, Giberson. His He recently wrote a uh, blog post for the CNN uh, religion blog, and basically claiming that uh, that if Jesus were alive today, he would be an evolutionist. And it just, it just, oh, man. <sighs> and a lot of people, you know, they assume that, uh, you know, you know that Roseboro guy, the reason why he doesn't like evolution is because he just doesn't understand science. And, you know, I actually had to take science classes in college just like other college graduates. And the nice thing about the science profs that I had is, is that uh, they weren't evolutionists. And so uh, I was taught, you know, I, literally I was taught against evolution. I taught against evolution using science. And uh, the the university that I attended for my undergraduate, it was Christ College when I got there, and it was Concordia University when I left. 
uh, changed their names. Uh, and uh, anyway, um, they invited a gentleman by the name of A.E. Wilder Smith, uh, Dr. A.E. Wilder Smith, to uh, and he came to our campus and he gave a series of lectures uh, f- from a scientific point of view. Uh, just decimating, absolutely decimating evolutionary theory. I have I have zero respect for evolutionary theory, zero respect for it as a science. And there's a whole lot of other scientists. There's scientists out there that are defecting from it left and right on scientific grounds. And so this is one of those things that you know, for the past twenty something years, uh, you know, I I don't claim to be an expert on it, but you know, I read just about every book I can get my hand hands on regarding. Uh, uh, the scientific critiques and criticisms of evolutionary theory. Some of it flies right over my head. You know, if I, if I remember right, A.E. Wilder Smith, he had a very interesting argument. And, you know, he was just talking about statistically, you know, how none of this works out. And he's written a fantastic book. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a little bit higher level uh, thinking, but the name of it is The Natural Sciences Know Nothing of Evolution by uh, Dr. A.E. Wilder Smith. I think he's uh, sainted now, but... Um, and one of his arguments, I remember this very distinctly, sitting in, in, uh, in listening to one of his lectures where he just, you know, destroyed evolutionary theory. Uh, he was talking about, you know, amino acids uh, that uh, the way they're formed, there's they can either be formed right-handedly or left-handedly. I I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but uh, you know, but uh, he says that all of the amino acids in uh, in you know in the human body go a particular way when they could also they can have a mirror image of themselves and go the opposite way. And he said that it would be a complete disaster if uh, they you know had they had gone they had been like the mirror image of themselves, amino acids building. Uh, in in opposite you know mirror opposite to where the way the way they're built, and uh, he used this as a fascinating argument against evolution. And so there's a lot of good scientific dissent out there uh, regarding evolutionary theory. But when we work against evolutionary theory, when we work against it, you have to see it for what it is. It's a competing religious mythology. That's really what evolution is. It's a competing religious mythology. And you don't take scientific knowledge and compartmentalize it and then say we have scientific knowledge over here in this compartment, and then we have religious and spiritual knowledge over here in this compartment. And, uh, you know, because the, here's the deal. The Bible uh, doesn't make such a distinction. There's truth, period. And so the Bible reveals that God created the world, and he did it in six days. And uh, and Jesus himself believed this. And so when we talk about uh, evolution, we begin with Jesus, of all people. The reason why is because Jesus actually claimed to be the God of the Bible in human flesh. And so you look at his, you look at his uh, view of the scriptures. What did he believe about evolution? What did he was he a creationist or was he an evolutionist? Answer: He was a, he was a creationist. He was not an evolutionist. If evolution were true, then Jesus would have taught it. If evolution is true, then the then the Genesis account would tell us this. The reality is is that all these people that are out there making these claims that uh, there's the evidence for evolution is overwhelming. When you when you push on that, the thing comes crumbling down. It's it's just not scientifically tenable, nor is it uh, replicatable. It's one of those things. Anyway, so I thought what I would do is <clears throat> I would invite a scientist on to Fighting for the Faith so that we can have this conversation because I, I think that would help you all out. And uh, basically, you know, 
You don't need to bend the knee to, to a Charles Darwin. You don't need to mix Christianity and evolutionary theory. I mean, mixing Christianity and evolutionary theory is like mis- mixing truth and darkness or mixing uh, <laughs> uh, well, light and darkness or you can't mix the light and darkness or truth and error. You can't mix truth and error or even worse, mixing sardines with ice cream. It just doesn't work. The two don't go together. God did not create the world via the means of evolution. The scripture is clear on this. And, and it, you sit there and go, well, it's not a, the Bible's not a scientific textbook. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. And uh, it, neither is it necessarily a history textbook either. Yet the historical information recorded in scripture is true. So where, where scripture touches on a topic uh, in science, it speaks about it truthfully. How did we get here? God created us. Get over it. Why is it? I just don't understand. I just don't understand why anybody who claims to be a Christian, who believes that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, you know, that, you know, dead men just don't get up. Okay. It just doesn't happen. Okay. Especially after they've been dead, you know, for a few days. It just doesn't happen. Yet Jesus rose again from the grave. If you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is not some huge leap to go, you know, if Jesus was raised from the dead bodily on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, it's not much of a stretch to think that, well, then maybe he knows what he's talking about when it comes to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the worldwide flood, uh, Jonah and the whale, and things like that. Listen, I trust Jesus. And over and again, I find it interesting that uh, by starting with Jesus and you know and his view, and then working out from there. So you start with Jesus. Well, if Jesus is God, then he and God in human flesh, and he said that God created, and he claimed to be the God who did the creating, and he proved it by raising himself from the dead. Then he knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. Jesus is not, never will be an evolutionist. We're, we didn't come about by random chance. And it takes, oh man, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And they sit there, well, don't you understand that, you know, the, uh, the universe is billions and gazillions of years old and that given uh, the, uh, the right amount of time that, you know, that random chance is capable of, uh, capable of producing the genetic code. No, it's not. I mean, seriously. If you, let's pretend that we have monkeys, okay? Let's let's go and grab ourselves some chimpanzees, and what we let's for whatever reason let's pretend this for the sake of argument. Let's postulate that what we're going to do is we're going to take some chimpanzees, and we found some magical way that'll make it so that they live forever, that they are eternal. So we have a group of eternal monkeys. We'll take three of them, okay? Uh, monkey see, monkey do, monkey whatever. You know, uh, hear no evil, speak no evil. You know that those. We'll take those monkeys. Put those monkeys in front of computers, Macintosh computers, because they actually last a long time, and uh, and let them start banging away on the keyboard. Okay, I guarantee you that even given even given a trillion years, those three monkeys could not reproduce via random chances banging away on the keyboards. Uh, let's say uh, uh, William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet wouldn't happen. Or any of anything that was written by William Shakespeare. In fact, it, given a, a trillion years, these three monkeys might get to the point where they say, "You know, to be or not to be." It might be in somewhere in the string of the of the the random you know things that they're banging out on their keyboard. But I guarantee you that the next words are going to be. Yeah, I stole that from Walter Martin, but it's true. Okay, yeah, no, 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 no.
Life is not meaningless. Life didn't happen by chance. It happened by God's design and by him speaking the world into existence in six days. This is true. Jesus believed it, and I'm going with him. When you have better credentials than Jesus, then I'll believe you. And what I find is is that by starting with Jesus, looking at the way he looked at things and go, well, he trusted God's word. God's word says this. He believed it. He, he says that he's the God who revealed it. He proved it by raising himself from the dead over and over again. Then when I approach the, uh, the topic at hand going, well, the Bible says this, and it's the word of God. How much do you want to bet? How much do you want to bet that if I push on the competing theory that it'll fall apart? And evolution comes crumbling down over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's it's a farce. It absolutely is a farce. So there, we don't need to we don't need to compromise with evolution. I'm not interested in getting along with it. I'm I'm interested in getting rid of it because it's bad science and it doesn't tell us the truth about our origins. So <clears throat> now that I got that off my chest, I feel a lot better. <sighs> anyway, all right, let's uh <laughs> let's talk about you know, I said what I you know what's funny, I think I said I wasn't gonna do a monologue and then I did a monologue because I got a bee in my bonnet on this thing. So what I'll be doing today is one of the things I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be reading an article by Ken Ham entitled, Is Jesus an Evolutionist? He responded to Giberson, and so I want to give uh, Ken Ham uh, some props. But I won't be interviewing Ken Ham next week. It's, I'll be interviewing one of uh, uh, one of the staff uh, scientists you know, over there at Answers in Genesis, and that'll be next week. But uh, I'll be reading Ken Ham's article today, Is Jesus an Evolutionist? We'll start off a little bit light today. Let's see here. Um, I'm not doing a light edition. It's just well, uh, somebody. In fact, I've received so many. I received so many emails about this that I, you know, I thought I'd play it. But apparently, there's a Christianized version of Rebecca Black's song "Friday" and that's uh, <laughs> making the rounds. I'll play a little bit of that. And oh man, I <laughs> I hesitate to be critical of it because I mean, this is a cute little teenage girl who's you know. Who looks so excited to be doing? It's just, oh man, do we really have to <laughs> Christianize all of the major popular songs out there nowadays? Anyway, uh, so yeah, I think she goes by the stage name of Sadie Black. So we'll we'll, uh, we'll preview that today. Um, Stephen Furtick has announced that uh, he's going to be doing a 3D Easter experience over there at Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. We'll be playing the video of Stephen Furtick announcing that. Um, then I've got a story about a a. a <clears throat> From the other uh, branch of Lutheranism that has gone apostate, the ELCA, those folks, uh, they, apparently there's a group of them that decided to become missional by setting up some kind of a pub entitled Luther's Table. I got a news story on that. We'll be playing that. Um, let's see. Uh, well, do I want to get to the other thing or not? Um, you know what? The One of the other things I'll do, uh, Rob Bell update. Uh, John MacArthur has uh, has put out a uh, an article basically asking the question is Rob Bell a brother that we should embrace or a wolf that she that we should warn against so I, I want to take a look at that today and then our sermon review man you know every time I do one of these a sermons a sermon by one of these guys my masculinity is absolutely challenged all right yeah okay um, we're gonna be doing a Carrie Shook sermon um, the name of it is a recipe for relating. <laughs> yeah, I got to do it. Carrie Shook is one of the major leaders in the seeker-driven movement, and he's in our regular rotation for sermon reviews. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, 
just thinking about this makes me just you know I get you know he, um y'all seen the uh, Pink Panther movies when uh, it, it, Chief Inspector Dreyfus, you know, he would get a twitch, a nervous twitch in his eye anytime Inspector Clouseau would show up. That's what I feel like whenever I, <laughs> it, Carrie Shook sermon is on the menu. It's like, <laughs> oh man, tomorrow we're going to do our light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just want to let you know. And then hopefully Friday, I, I'll have time to uh, spend a little bit of time reviewing the recent 2020 um expose that they did on uh independent fundamentalist baptist churches and some of the um the problems there and you know i've 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 worked through us this segment several times i want to discuss it on the program and the problem is this here's the problem i don't know if you've seen it if you have seen it then you know it's very sad and very depressing uh, the the thing is, is that the way ABC's 2020 covered the story is that they painted with such a broad brush, and they have no proper understanding of law and gospel that they did that they, you know, all they could talk about is the exploits that take place in the IFB uh, churches, uh, and there's no attempt on their part to kind of tease out what's right and what's wrong biblically, and so as a result of it, some stuff that's biblically true gets trashed in, in this reporting, and that's not good, and so. Um, I want to make sure that I handle uh, this particular topic correctly and and biblically, because uh, the way I look at it is those of you who uh, who understand what the IFB is, the Independent Fundamentalist Baptist uh, Movement, I've talked with many uh, folks who are former IFB folk who the, the stories they tell me are harrowing. They are absolutely jaw-dropping bad I mean, a, just spiritual abuse like you wouldn't believe kind of stories. And in fact, I um, maybe a, two, a couple of months ago, I uh, was able to have dinner with uh, uh, two gentlemen who are former uh, members of IFB churches, and they had gone to um, Bob Jones University. And uh, I, I literally just sat there in just utter shock at the stories that I was hearing coming from these two men. And uh, and we were kicking, you know, we kind of kicking this around, and and uh, I said, you know what this room it sounds like to me? It sounds like Baptist Sharia, you know. It, it's a it's a, it's some weird legalistic uh, Christianish cult that uh, is more attuned is really more akin to uh, Sharia law rather than what the Bible really teaches. And uh, and they both thought that was a a, a good explanation, a, a good way of describing it. So we're going to be looking at this uh, IFB thing on fr- probably on Friday. I hopefully I'll have all my uh, research done by then so that I can cover this correctly, because um, you got to properly understand law and gospel, and a proper understanding of church discipline is 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 needed here. And certain things that have to be kind of sorted out, you know, where you have to kind of un you have to erase some of the broad brush stroking that was taking on. Uh, that was uh, going on on that uh, 2020 expose. So hopefully we'll talk about that on Friday. <sighs> Have I beat this all to death now? Uh, <laughs> are we ready to move on? Okay, let's tell you what. Uh, <laughs> let let's move on. That's that's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna move forward here. So um, okay. So um, <clears throat> those of you familiar with popular music know that um, Rebecca Black has a very very popular song that's out entitled Friday, and um, apparently uh, some gal by the name of Sadie Black, I do believe that's probably a stage name, uh, her and her peeps have come up with a um, (laughs) 
a Christianized version of it. And I don't know if this is really some real attempt at, uh, you know, at, at, at real Christian music or if it's a, a spoof. I got to tell you, it's it's cute is the best way I can say it. But I always roll my eyes and shake my head when I see Christians completely ripping off and knocking off what's going on in secular society. Anyway, so here, here here's Sadie Black and her song, Sunday. Gotta love that auto-tuner, you know? Waking up in the morning, gotta be sharp, gotta do my hair Can't find a bowl, no time for cereal End of the weekend, time is going Ticking on and on, everybody rushing Gonna go to church at the stop Can't forget my Bible, God is my friend Mom is in the front seat, getting in the back seat Gotta make our minds up, which service will we make? It's Sunday, Sunday Everybody's looking forward to the Easter weekend. Sunday, Sunday, celebrating Sunday. Everybody's looking to the Easter weekend. This is just like saccharine sweet. Oh man. Worshipping, worshipping, yeah. worshipping, worshipping. Yeah. One, two, three, six. Looking forward to coming. 9.30, we're stepping in the service Music, message, don't want time to fly Fun, fun, church can be fun You know that it is I got this, you got this Communion by my right Hey, I got this, you got this Offering that I get Kicking in the front pew Sitting in the back pew Gotta make my mind up Which row will we take? It's Sunday, Sunday Oh, man. I feel like I'm watching the Disney Channel and whatever the next iteration of Miley Cyrus's Hannah Montana is going to be. She's she's a little stiff. She doesn't quite have the moves that Miley Cyrus has. Yesterday was Saturday, and Monday comes after church. I don't want this service to end. It's your main homeboy. Oh no, who are these guys? Hey, God, this uh, cute little thing has been taken over um, by Pastor Ding and Pastor Dong. Hang on. BP Master E. Chilling in the front seat, I'm riding shotgun, VP's driving. We're going to church on Saturday night. Ho! Tomorrow is Easter. Oh, look, there's a tree and a fire truck and another car. That car is orange. Nothing rhymes with orange. Let's go to church. It's Easter weekend. Come on, come on. Oh, file this one under the category of relevancy fail. It was cute for a minute there, and then Pastor Ding and Pastor Dong 
Had to just interrupt it, you know. Sunday, Sunday, head to church on Sunday. Everybody's looking forward to the Easter weekend. Sunday, Sunday, celebrating Sunday. Everybody's looking to the Easter weekend. Worshiping, worshiping, yeah. worshiping, worshiping. Yeah. One, two, yeah, it's theology of glory for teeny boppers. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Talk about Easter Sunday. Um, <laughs> while we're <laughs> since Sadie Black, I don't, I think that's her stage name. Brought it up. Um, you know, uh, Easter Sunday is coming up, and well, that means all the seeker-driven churches have got to get themselves into gear in order to provide people with the never before ever experienced Easter experience extravaganza that they've never experienced before. And uh, well, uh, Stephen Furtick from Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, is. Well, he's, I want to say he's leading the herd, but he's really not. You'll, details here in a second, but if we're going to talk about Stephen Furtick, we can't do that without a little bit of Carly Simon. I feel like a disc jockey today. He walked into the party like you were You think the Bible's about you, you're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? Yeah, you can see why I never trade off American Idol. All right. <laughs> oh, man. All right, so, uh, yeah, um, I, in fact, I've got three different churches I want to report on, but the first of them is Elevation Church. By the way, those of you who are asking, uh, one of the traditions we have here at uh, Fighting for the Faith is every uh, right after Easter, usually it takes about a week for me to collect all of the different uh, contestants, but uh, it's not usually the week right after Easter. It's the week after the week after Easter. We do a sermon uh, contest, It's and the, it, the contest is Worst Easter Sermon of the Year. Wor- the worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Um, past winners include uh, Joel Osteen and Rob Bell. Joel Osteen and Rob Bell are our two... Uh, are two winners uh, of worst Easter sermon of the year. So this is this year is no different. We're going to be doing a worst Easter sermon of the year contest, and uh, it, it like it takes about a week for me to collect them all, review them, narrow down the contestants. And so if you if you want to suggest anybody, if you want to suggest. A, a, a particular Easter sermon that you had to endure or you know that somebody had to endure, please send me your contestant uh, suggestions uh, right after Easter, and you se- send them to uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and in the subject heading, put uh, worst Easter sermon Contestant, and just put that as the subject heading, and uh, and then I'll take a look at those. It takes it it takes me a literally a week in order to narrow things down, and by the time we get to the end of the week, so I just want to let you know. So. 
the week after the week after Easter, we are <laughs> you are going to be delighted to have five ba- five days in a row of really horrible <laughs> Easter sermons <laughs> for different reasons too. And see, I uh, so anyway, but uh, Elevation Church, uh, you know, <clears throat> Pastor Stephen Furtick, uh, he, they have a uh, their Easter uh, their well. I better let him explain. They're, he's, they're going to be um, doing something special at Easter. And oddly enough, I find uh, Stephen Furtick not leading the pack here. This is not original. Um, in fact, I think Tommy Sparger did the, this exact idea last year. But uh, here, uh, here, here's uh, Stephen Furtick. All right, church, I'm doing something I've never done before. You know, I'll do whatever it takes to bring the gospel to you and your friends and your family in an exciting new way. That's right. We just, it's not enough to bring you the gospel. No, 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 no. Yeah, it makes me wonder, how on earth did the church survive for 2,000 years without these seeker-driven guys? Think about it. You know, I mean, I mean, we've got the 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 Christian church, the church itself, you know, um, it belongs to Christ, has somehow not only thrived, but grown, uh, you know, in the past 2,000 years. I mean, we're talking billions of people over the past 2,000 years who have been granted through the means of grace, through God's, pre- the preaching of the gospel, um, uh, they have been granted repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. And um, we're talking billions and billions and billions of people over the last 2,000 years. And um, But, I mean, thanks to Stephen Furtick, I mean, he's come up with a way of making it so that he can provide, preach the gospel in a way that has never been done before. How did the church grow without him? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised we've made it this far. This year, it's 3D Easter. I hope you've heard about it. I hope you're making plans to attend and bring... You know, I've actually... <clears throat> Stephen, um, I'm, I'm shocked here. I'm, in, in fact, I'm kind of disappointed in you. I mean, for years, you have been the go-to guy, and Elevation Church has been the go-to church for creative ways of, well, creating Easter experiences. You single-handedly are responsible for all of the different seeker-driven churches who have ripped off your idea to uh, you know to drop thousands and thousands of plastic easter eggs out of a helicopter uh, you know in order to you know create spectacle and 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 you know and encourage people to come to church on easter to hear the gospel and um, you know I, I i know of at least half a dozen at least half a dozen seeker driven churches that aren't nearly as cutting edge and well known as, as you who've done 3d sermon series and, and and even a 3d easter sermon series i'm I'm saddened. You know, obviously you're 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 off your game here. Um, but maybe you'll do it better than them. I mean, that'll that'll show them. You know, but you know, so that you can regain title as most creative, seeker-driven guy ever out there. You know, but. everybody with you, the gospel in three dimensions. Right now, I'm on location filming for part of my sermon. Now, don't worry, the whole thing won't be in 3D. I'll be live some, be a simulcast, and take the glasses off and put them back on. It's going to be amazing. Don't worry about that. But You know, can I point something out, too? Um, <clears throat> you know, um, in, last fall, I was um, at uh, New Spring Church at um, one of the leadership conferences that uh, Perry Noble hosted there, and uh, I was in the audience. And, you know, while I was there, 
I actually saw Stephen Furtick in 3D. It's true. And I didn't even have to wear any special spectacles except for my bifocals because my eyesight's bad. But even if I wasn't wearing bifocals, everybody there got to experience Perry Noble, Mark Driscoll, uh, Francis Chan, Judah Smith, Stephen Furtick in 3D. Just saying, you know. In fact, maybe he's just confessing that all of his other sermons have been two-dimensional. I, I don't know. Right here, I'm in an undisclosed location, somewhere where there are bright lights, somewhere where what happens here stays here. Uh, that's all I can say right now. But I want you to know, we're putting together a powerful presentation of the gospel. It's going to relate to everyone. Yeah, because, you know, when you just preach the gospel itself, that isn't powerful enough. you got to go to Vegas if you're going to make the gospel more powerful. On whether you grew up in church or whether you hadn't been to church a day in your life, the gospel is going to be preached this Easter. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And, and in fact, you know, uh, Stephen, I've given you props when you've preached the gospel in the past and, you know, defended the need for people to actually read God's word. So I'm looking forward to hearing you preach the gospel on Easter. I will be tuning in. The question is, are you going to be a bringer? Are you going to find those people in your life and not only tell them, hey, come to church with me this Easter? Are you going to bring them with you? Get your tickets now. Uh, what? Tickets? Um, yeah, um, yeah, I enjoy going to churches where I don't have to get tickets in order to hear the gospel. Okay, as many as you... Oh, and by the way, you know, funny thing about my pastor, he preaches the gospel like every Sunday. Need for you, your... No tickets necessary, you just show up and he'll preach the gospel to you. Family and your friends, and make your plans for 3D... But then again, I mean, it, you know, funny thing, that's the other thing, you know, my boring, bland, blasé, um, Lutheran pastor, you know, who, you know, does expository Bible preaching and... And we sing hymns and everything. You know what's funny is is that every sermon I've ever heard my pastor preach, you know, when I was there at church, um, you know, he was in 3D too. Hmm, weird. Easter, we've been saying there's more to see in 3D. Yeah, baby, it's going to be 3D Easter. But more than the 3D, I'm excited about what God has given me to share. It's going to connect with the hearts of people who are far from God. Uh, hasn't God given you and every other pastor the same message to share? I mean, isn't that in the Bible? You know, maybe you got something different. Maybe you missed the memo. Uh, the, the the There was a memo written to all pastors by God to pastors. You'll find it in, like, Timothy. Second uh, Timothy, I think. Preach the word in season, out of season. <laughs> Did you get that memo? I believe we're going to see many of those people in your life who don't have a relationship with Jesus experience him like never before. Get your tickets. See you for 3D Easter. Yeah, like I said, my pastor, who I mean, who is about as low-tech as they get. Um, I, every Sunday I see him preach in 3D. It's true, you know, I, no special equipment necessary. It's just one of those. Yeah, I'm kind of saddened. But anyway, uh, yeah, <laughs> and... <laughs> And let me see here. Uh, Tommy Sparger at TommySparger.com. He um he's he does the uh, he's the pastor at North Point Church out there in uh, in Missouri. And uh, and <laughs> their their big Easter extravaganza is entitled Story. In fact, let me read from Tommy Sparger's weblog. Um, <clears throat> unforgettable multimedia experience with lights, music, video, kabuki drop. And a massive production. Uh, we're going to blow your freaking mind. Please arrive on time or you will miss the first t- 15 minutes of uh, the story. Yeah. I, what is a kabuki bu- uh, drop? I 
don't know what that is. And then uh, SOS Church, who we've also reviewed sermons for during Easter. Uh, their, <laughs> their sermon series kicking off on Easter is entitled Me Three, or Me Cubed. I, you know, um, <sighs> yeah, let, me, let me read the description here. What greater day than Easter to be our guest at SOS Church? Our topic this year is Me Three. Join us during any of our three services to hear the Easter story through an exciting time of music, media, performing arts, plus learn about how the number three can represent personal completion and find out what <laughs> what that might look like in <laughs> your life. Wow, I I had no idea that the, uh, the, the Easter story, you know, Jesus' resurrection from the grave, was... <laughs> was about personal completion. I I did not know that. Me three. I can hardly wait to review that sermon. But anyway, thanks to uh, Joshua Brunken, uh, my uh, one of my Facebook friends and listener to Fighting for the Faith for the heads up on these, and uh, also Frank Mako. Uh, man, let's kind of tell you, I can hardly wait. It, it feels just like Christmas, but it's Easter. Yeah, what a gift we're getting. <laughs> what a gift, what a gift. I mean, all of these amazing, how did Tommy Sparger put it? Freaking Easter experiences. Oh, yeah, because, you know, the the story of Jesus rising from the dead, you know, that's just not enough. Won't do it for us anymore. No, we, we've got to do something bigger and better and have a more insane experience. And you can experience Easter in 3D. Like I said, I my pastor, every time I go to church, he's still there in 3D with no special equipment necessary, no big expensive budgets to fly, you know, to locations like ah, Vegas. Anyway, all right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. <laughs> my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. You can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pyre Christian. Oh, man, we'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. 
Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether He's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, He's merciful, He's righteous, and He's wrathful all at the same time. Okay then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. (laughs) Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes, he's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. The resurrection is the miracle, not your multimedia relevant presentation of it. Preach the gospel. Preach the resurrection. Stop putting the show on. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460 Yeah, the problem with all these Easter extravaganza, mucho, big experience types of things is that people are going to end up leaving going, wow, wasn't the 3D like amazing? Wasn't that story so cool, man? (laughs) Rather than going, oh man, I have such an amazing savior. 
yeah, see, the, the emphasis is on the coolness of the experience rather than on the crucified and risen Lord. Just saying, just something I've noticed. Okay, move, moving along. You know what? Um, you know this is from a news source, so let's uh, do this here. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, the uh, from Como News Four, which I think is in Seattle. Yeah, the uh, the name of this is Pastor Pastors Find New Calling Behind the Bar. Oh man! Now before you, th- <laughs> you got to listen to this story because <laughs> the problem here is may not be as readily as apparent as you think. Because <laughs> there's just so many issues here that's just ridiculous. But <clears throat> here, here um, <clears throat> a ministry in Renton is tapping into the beer and wine business. Come Force Lisa Jaffe shows us how pastors have found a new calling behind the bar. Merlot Camry. Turning water into wine is almost as surprising as turning pastors into bartenders. If you say, hey, did you hear that those Lutherans, they're serving beer down there in Renton? Yeah, yeah, no, no, before, (laughs) you can't see the subtitle here. Let let me do a little reading for you. You're listening to Gretchen Mertes, a Lutheran pastrix. It says pastor, but see, here's the deal. The, The Bible knows of no such thing as a female pastor, so... Well, we, we've got a problem, um, yeah, like big time here. In other words, what we're dealing with are those um, liberalized apostate Lutherans. Uh, what are they, Linos? Uh, Lutheran in name only? Anyway, so yeah, Gretchen Mertes, she plays a pastor on television, but she's really not actually a pastor, despite the fact that she, well, yeah. Let's continue. Believe that? Um, all of a sudden people go, Really? That's great. And a window is opened that was never opened before. Gretchen. Yeah, so this is all part of a, an outreach. Nice tattoos, by the way, Gretchen. Uh, this is all part of some kind of an outreach program that these uh, Lutherans in Retton have come up with. So they've opened up a bar. And Murtis is among the Lutheran pastors called to serve. Beer and wine, that is, at Luther's table. They didn't train me to do this in seminary, though, I tell you what. The new cafe isn't limited to Lutherans, but it's run by the Outreach Ministry of St. Matthew's Church. The goal, a caring gathering place to share Chardonnay and gripes. So you got laid off. Well, you know, you're in good company. The watering hole is the brainchild of Pastor Murtis, who left her clerical collar at home, but not her purple converse. I marry and bury and do the weddings and the funerals and the baptisms and preach. When you belly up to the bar at Luther's table, you won't find a Bible. What? (laughs) Huh? Oh, yeah, you know, (laughs) because... Yeah, Luther. I mean, we, yeah, he wouldn't want you to have a Bible there at uh, Luther's table. No, 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 because Luther's all about just coming there with your gripes and your complaints. And this is just, you know, don't worry, you know, we're not going to puzzle you with a Bible. Yeah. Oh, heavens. No. Just brews and pews. This is a place for the church to be, not to arm twist. Bishop. Yeah, we got to get rid of the... <laughs> this is a place for the church just to be, not to arm twist. <sighs> And the good news is, I'm sure that uh, if you pass out because you've had too much to drink, they'll provide you with a Lutheran uh, designated driver. I'm sure. Oh, man, this is just just aggravating as hell. I'm going to try the pulp. And praises the porters. Anything that's dark uh, beer, that's me. The ministry sees Luther's table as a way to carry on Martin Luther's tradition. Really? Um. So a bar without the Bible, where people can come and just gripe and be. 
carries on the tradition of Martin Luther? Yeah, I don't think so. I think Luther would have some serious problems here. And the problem that he has has zero to do with the fact that they're serving alcohol. It has everything to do with the fact that this is being done in the name of religion and there's no Bible. This is ridiculous. He would have problems with the Lutheran pastrix there. He would have problems with all kinds of stuff, including the uh, the bishop there. Um, oh man, this doesn't carry on Lutheran's, Luther's tradition at all because Luther constantly was pointing people to Christ, and he was the one who brought the Bible to the Germans by translating it. And uh, reflecting on the day's studies with students over food and beer, pastors not only have tradition on their side. They have a stained glass Jesus from the old Renton Lutheran Church watching over them. We love to say that he's ordering uh, two beers, please. In Renton. Or three beers if you count the thumb. Alisa Jaffe, Como 4 News. So even their stained glass window has Jesus saying, hey, I'll take three beers. This is blasphemous on so many levels. I don't even, I, I don't even need to comment i just i don't need to comment i i if i try to comment i could blow up that's that's all i have to say send me your comments i'd love to get them and read them because then i can vent via proxy anyway we have a rob bell update here song for Rob Bell because it's so postmodern. What on earth is a champagne supernova in the sky? I just, you know, just words, you know, they have no particular meaning, just they mean whatever you, they're supposed to evoke some kind of an image inside of you. Uh, from the Grace to You blog, uh, John MacArthur has weighed in uh, regarding Rob Bell. The headline reads, Rob Bell, a brother to embrace or a wolf to avoid. Ha 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 ha. It begins with a poll quote that's uh, with a very dark line box around it. I, I'm not used to seeing um, articles begin with a poll quote, but here's the poll quote. If Christopher Hitchens or Deepak Chopra penned a book that scoffed at the biblical teaching on hell, we would not be surprised. So why would anyone be shocked or confused when Rob Bell writes Love Wins? Has Bell shown any more commitment to gospel truth or any more devotion to the principle of biblical authority than Hitchens or Chopra? 
<laughs> nice deconstructing question there. Got to give props to John MacArthur. Yeah, he he, <laughs> he start he starts his article using a deconstructing question against Rob Bell, which if you've read Rob Bell's book Love Wins, it's like the first chapter to have. I mean, it's just a rattling off of all of these questions. Anyway, um MacArthur writes is Bell truly a Christian, or is he one of those dangerous deceivers Scripture warns us about repeatedly? For instance, see Acts chapter 29, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, Colossians 2, verse 8, 2 Peter chapter, 1, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, etc. It's a fair and necessary question. Christ's famous warning about wolves in sheep's clothing is given to us as an imperative. Quote, Beware, this isn't it is in the imperative. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7, uh, verses 15 through 16. Our Lord clearly expects his true disciples to be able to spot spiritual imposters and wolves in sheep's clothing, especially those who are purveyors of deadly false doctrines. Rob Bell certainly fits that category. He relentlessly casts doubt on the authority and reliability of Scripture. Yes, he does. He denies the Bible's pers- uh, perspicuity. Yes, he does. Disavows its hard truths. Yes, he does. And ridicules some of the most important features of the gospel. Yes, he most certainly does that, too. Granted, Bell, who was raised in the evangelical movement and is an alumnus of Wheaton College, still insists on calling himself evangelically. In fact, he even says he's a Christian. He reiterated that claim recently in a March 14th interview with Lisa Miller where he stated, do I think I'm an evangelical and orthodox to the bone? Yes. A careful examination of Bell's teaching suggests, however, that his profession of faith is not credible. Yeah, again, let me read this. This is important. Because remember, Jesus' warning that MacArthur has pointed out here is spot on. Jesus warned us about wolves dressed up as sheep, okay? So we're talking about cross-dressing wolves. That's what we're talking about. <clears throat> a careful examination of Bell's teaching suggests, however, that his profession of faith is not credible. His claim that he is evangelical and orthodox to the bone is, to put it bluntly, a lie. Bell's teaching gives no evidence of any real evangelical conviction. If Quote, each tree is known by its fruit, Luke 6, 44. We cannot blithely embrace Rob Bell as a brother just because he says he wants to be accepted as an evangelical. If, as Jesus said, his sheep hear his voice and follow him, then we ought to look with the utmost suspicion on anyone who doubts and denies as much of Jesus' teaching as Rob Bell does and yet claims to be a follower of Christ. Scripture is crystal clear about this. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. By the way, those are the words of the Apostle Paul, written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-4. through 4. Historic evangelicalism has always affirmed the authority, inerrancy, and sufficiency of Scripture while declaring, as Jesus and the apostle did, apostles did, that the only way of salvation for fallen humanity is through the atoning work of Christ, and the only instrument of justification is faith in Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the gospel. You know what? This is, <clears throat> Can I point something out here? This is, uh, this is one of those things that I would like to um, 
well, take a slightly different tact, agree but disagree with uh, Dr. MacArthur. And let me explain what I mean by that. He says historic evangelicalism has always affirmed. I would say historic Christianity has always affirmed. Not just historic evangelicalism, because evangelicalism, you can trace it back to the, um, to the uh, Reformation, which you, that doesn't go far enough. Okay, You need to be able to trace Christianity back through the Dark Ages into the early Christian church and back to the apostles. And when you read the early church fathers, <laughs> yeah, you find out that, uh, well, they were Christian too. Funny enough. I mean, yes, it's true. Irenaeus, Polycarp, uh, Ignatius, uh, Augustine, uh, you know, you know, those guys, Cyprian of Alexandria. We're talking, there's a whole host, a host of Christians. And so I would see it. Can I come back to this? I consider myself to be an evangelical Catholic. Christianity did not begin at the Reformation. The Reformation recovered historic Christianity or true Catholicism, not Roman Catholicism, but true Catholicism, small c. <clears throat> this, this, this just a little issue I have there. Anyway, um, MacArthur continues. He says, Rob Bell believes none of those things. You're right. He does not believe in the uh, he does not believe in the authority, inerrancy, sufficiency of Scripture. And uh, does not believe that the only way of salvation for fallen humanity is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, and the only instrument of justification is faith in Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the gospel. Right. Rob Bell does not affirm any of those. His skepticism about so many key biblical truths, his penchant for sowing doubt in his hearers, that's right, this is the classic, classic technique of not just the emergent church, but of the devil himself the penchant for sowing doubt in his hearers and is his obvious contempt for the principles of divine justice as taught in Scripture all give evidence that he is precisely the kind of unbelieving false teacher that Scripture warns us about. Amen. Hear, hear. That's right. Bell is an inveterate syncretist who loves to blend progressive and politically correct dogmas with Eastern mysticism, humanistic jargon, and Christian terminology. His teaching is full of barren ideas borrowed directly from old liberalism, sometimes rephrased in postmodern jargon, but still seeking or still reeking of stale Socinianism. What Bell is peddling is nothing like New Testament Christianity. It is a man-centered religion totally devoid of both clarity and biblical authority. Given those facts, you might think any true evangelical would reject Bell and his teaching outright, but evidently many in American evangelical movement think they are obliged simply to accept at face value Bell's claim of orthodoxy. No less than Mart DeHaan, voice of Radio Bible Class, decried Bell's critics, portraying them as divisive ones for pointing out the unsoundness of Bell's teaching. DeHaan wrote, quote, I'm left wondering, are, are we allowing love and truth to win now by using threats of group pressure and blackballing of brothers like Rob Bell and those who openly or secretly stand with him? Is that really the best way to maintain a strong and healthy orthodoxy? <clears throat> The biblical answer to DeHaan's question is clear and fairly simple. Quote, uh, the best way to maintain a strong and healthy orthodoxy is to, quote, hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, to exhort in sound, sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious men and empty talkers and deceivers who must be silenced. Titus chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We have a duty 
not only to expose, refute, and silence Rob Bell's errors, but also to urge people under his influence to run as fast and as far as they can from him, lest they be gathered into the eternal hell that he denies. It won't it won't do to sit by idly while someone who denies the danger of hell mass produces sons of hell. Cross-reference Matthew 23, verse 15. In a series of posts this week, we will demonstrate from Rob Bell's own published work that he has long been hostile to virtually every vital gospel truth. We will consider some of the questions he has raised about the Bible, has to say about hell, and we will compare and contrast what Bell is saying about hell with what Jesus said about it. Buckle in and get ready to be challenged. These are admittedly some of the hardest truths in the New Testament, but there's no reason anyone holding authentic evangelical convictions should find the subject confusing or controversial. Uh, That was the first shot there by John MacArthur, and I think we might be uh, covering some of his uh, forthcoming criticisms of the non-brother, the wolf in sheep's clothing, known as Rob Bell. All right, last bit before we go to our second break. I'm trying to stretch out this this first hour as long as humanly possible because <laughs> I'm doing a Carrie Shook sermon in hour number two, and I. <laughs> anyway, uh, <clears throat> from the uh, from the around the world with Ken Ham blog, which is part of the Answers in Genesis organization. Ken Ham uh, has a, a blog post entitled, Is Jesus an Evolutionist? This is the thing I've been grinding on all day. Um, <clears throat> Ken Ham writes, he says, A Nazarene college professor believes he is. Carl Giberson from the Eastern Nazarene College located on Boston's South Shore wrote this on a CNN website. The Nazarene School's website states, quote, Carl Giberson teaches science and religion and directs the honors program at Eastern Nazarene College. He is one of the leading scholarly voices in America's ongoing controversy over evolution. What has this academic scholar at Nazarene College written lately? From the religion blog at the CNN website, he wrote an article entitled, Jesus Would Believe in Evolution and So Should You. That's right. Jesus would believe in it and so should you. Funny thing is, Jesus never did believe in it. Let me continue. Here are some of the excerpts from Dr. Giberson's commentary, which in itself is an attack on the Word of God. And really, because Jesus is the Word, John 1, verses 1 through 2, an attack on God's Word is also an attack on the Son. Giberson states, quote, When science began in the 17th century, Christians eagerly applied the new knowledge to alleviate suffering and and improving living conditions. Okay. Uh, Ken Ham quotes uh, his commentary. First of all, science means knowledge. What he is referring to is modern empirical science based on repeatable, observable facts. Such empirical science has enabled us to develop technology, medicines, etc. For this we are all grateful. Whether a scientist is an evolutionist or a creationist, we can applaud them for the great technological advances because of operational or observational science. But Giberson then steps out of discussing observational science and steps into historical science, beliefs about the past, when he says, quote, But when it comes to the truth of evolution, many Christians feel compelled to look the other way. Ham responds, From the context of the article, we see that by evolution, he's referring to Darwinian evolution, molecules to ape-like creatures to man. This is not truth. It is a belief about the past. He then demeans God's inspired, God-breathed word by stating the following, quote, 
they hold on to a particular interpretation of an ancient story in Genesis that they have fashioned into a modern account of origins, a story that began as an oral tradition for wandering a wandering tribe of Jews thousands of years ago. Giberson, Ham now uh, commenting, Giberson here is actually applying his belief in evolutionary history to the Bible. He assumes that people in the past were not as intellectual or as intelligent as people today. Giberson has a very different view of inspiration than that of Orthodox Christians. He obviously does not see the record of Genesis as God-breathed. Yet in the New Testament, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, to name, uh, to, to name a couple of references, the Apostle Paul referred to events in Genesis as real history, foundational to the gospel. Jesus, in Matthew 19, quoted from Genesis 1 and 2 as real history, as the foundation for the doctrine of marriage. Jesus is the truth. He is the word. To claim that Jesus is just an ancient, uh, that Genesis is just an ancient story that began as an oral tradition for a wandering tribe of Jews is to attack the word of God, and thus it is an attack on the Son of God, who is the word. Giberson continues, quote, This is the view on display in a $27 million creation museum in Kentucky. It inspired the Institute for Creation Research, which purports to offer scientific support for creationism. Ken Ham responds, Those who've actually been to the Creation Museum know it is a place that honors God's word and proclaims the gospel. Later in the article, Giberson states the following, quote, For more than two centuries, careful scientific research, much of it done by Christians, has demonstrated clearly that the earth is billions of years old. Not mere thousands, as many creationists argue. We now know that the human race began millions of years ago in Africa, not thousands of years ago in the Middle East, as the story of Genesis suggests. Ham responds, so Paul was wrong in 1 Corinthians 11 about the origins of, of humans when he twice stated that the Woman is of the man. Paul said that the woman, the first woman, Eve, came from the man, a reference to God creating Eve from Adam's side in Genesis 2. To believe in evolution, as Giberson does, uh, one must believe that the woman came from an ape woman and that man from an ape man. The Bible makes it clear that man was made from the dust and woman from his side. Jesus, in Matthew 19, quoted Genesis 2.24 regarding the one flesh, thus clearly stating that the Genesis 2 account is literal history. So if Giberson is right, Jesus didn't tell the truth and Paul was wrong. So what is the Bible, really? If it is fallible, who determines which bits are fallible? Giberson goes on again to state that evolution is a fact. Quote, And all life forms are related to each other through evolution. These are important truths that science has discovered through careful research. They are not opinions that can be set aside if you don't like them. Anyone who values truth must take these ideas seriously, for they have been established as beyond any reasonable doubt. Yeah, um, no, actually, I know so many scientists and have read so many of them that they, they... challenge this on scientific grounds. Um, But uh, Ham writes, he says, well, there is one verse of scripture that comes to mind, let God be true and every man a liar, Romans 3, 4. Giberson then discusses discusses supposed evidence for evolution. This evidence is all countered and answered clearly in various articles at the answers 
in Genesis.org website. If you'd like to go there, please do and just do some research. Later in the article, he states the following, Christians must come to welcome rather than fear the ideas of evolution. Truths about nature are sacred, for they speak of our Creator. Such truths constitute God's second book. For, Christian to re- for Christians to read alongside of the Bible, to understand how the heavens... Uh, how the heavens go, we must relate. We must read the book of nature, not the Bible. Uh, this is a similar concept to one taught by Hugh Ross, that nature is the 67th book of the Bible. However, nature is cursed. It's affected by sin, and nature doesn't say anything. Fallible man has to interpret nature, and the only way to ensure one has the right basis to interpret it correctly is to build one's thinking on the history that is revealed in Scripture. Well, this is done. Well, when this is done, we understand that nature is suffering from the effects of the fall. The whole creation groans because of sin. Romans eight twenty two. One doesn't look at the creation and see billions of years. That is an interpretation made by fallible men, and that interpretation is incorrect. The written word of God makes it clear that thorns came from the curse after the curse. Yet there are fossil thorns in rocks said to be supposedly millions of years old. The Bible makes it clear that death, disease, and suffering are the result of sin. But death, disease, and uh, death, disease, and evidence of violence and suffering abounds in the fossil records. This record has to come after sin, not millions of years before man. Giberson continues, The book of nature reveals the truth that God created the world through gradual processes over billions of years rather than over the course of six days, as many creationists believe. Actually, the Bible does state that God created in six days. See Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, which states, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Read the account for yourself. Where does it state billions of years? It doesn't. And where do you read in the book of nature that the world is billions of years old and that we and that life evolved? You read this in man's fallible books as fallible man who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, Romans chapter 1. As Giberson is doing, then imposes this story, and that's what it is, a made-up story on nature. He then states the following, quote, Evolution does not contradict the Bible unless you force an unreasonable interpretation on that ancient book. What he is saying is that evolution doesn't contradict the Bible unless you take the Bible as it is written. As long as you reinterpret God's word, thus undermining its authority, you can make God's word mean anything that you want it to mean. Giberson then ends the article with the following, quote, To these questions we should add, what would Jesus believe about origins? And the answer is Jesus would believe evolution. Of course, he cares for the truth. Here are the words of Jesus. He is the word, so any quote of Scripture is to quote Jesus. Jesus said, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. Psalm 119, uh, verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth. John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47, do not think that I shall accuse you To the Father there is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You can read Giberson's entire undermining commentary at the CNN religion blog. Like I said, there is not a single scientific reason to capitulate to evolutionary theory in Darwin at all. At all. 
thank you, Ken Ham, for your fantastic work, and we will be continue to be praying for you. All right, we are up on our second break. When we come back, we've got a Carrie Sh- Sh- Shook sermon. Yeah, I can hardly wait. Um, <laughs> as you can tell, I'm really looking forward to this one. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I Enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Okay, I've, uh, I've, I've gathered some manly paraphernalia to help me through this sermon here. I've got a football helmet, a, a pirate poster, a sword, a baseball bat, and a soccer ball. Yeah, yeah, just, and some boxing gloves. Yeah, just to help me out here. All right, here we go. 
The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, oh man, uh, comes to us via Carrie Shook Ministries, Houston, Texas. The name of the sermon, A Recipe for Relating. Fellowship of the Woodlands is the church where this was preached at. That's right, the sermon is called The Recipe for Relating. Now, those of you who are fans of Paula Dean's cooking show, <laughs> you're going to love this. <laughs> I need some more manly metaphors. He is the only guy that I know that is capable of taking a what normally would be like a manly sermon topic and just draining of it of its testosterone and just filling it with nothing but estrogen. Yeah, let me just kill the music here. So, <laughs> as you can tell, I, I'm just like, I don't want to do this sermon review. I don't want to do this sermon review. Oh, man, we're really going to do this sermon review. Anyway, <laughs> here, oh, man, here is uh, Carrie Shook, Fellowship of the Woodlands, a recipe for relating. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Here's... Make it last, make it count. Let the passion in your heart be what you live. Love completely. Make it last. With oh, even the song. If your true love, make it count. With the passion to live, make it last. Okay, I am actually watching this uh, via video podcast. Um, they're, they're at Fellowship of the Woodlands. They've closed the curtains in, you know, and blocked out the sunlight. And I kid you not, they've wheeled out on stage. I mean, it looks like a kitchen. I mean, he's got three different countertops. He's got an oven going on there. He's got a... <sighs> How many of you like to watch those cooking shows on television, like Emerald, the Cajun cook... Likes to spice it up. Bam. No, I don't like to watch that. Or maybe you're like my wife and you like every day with Rachel Ray. Never seen a single episode. <laughs> well, in this series, it's going to be every day with Pastor K. Because over the next several weeks, we're going to cook up some tasty recipes. But more importantly, we're going to study God's cookbook and we're going to discover the ingredients to build a healthy marriage. Yeah, so apparently the Bible's a cookbook to help you whip up a healthy marriage, yeah. Oh, boy. We're going to discover the recipe for relating, dating, and mating. Now, this series is for everyone. No, it's really not for me. I'm creeped out already. If you're single... You're going to find that most of these principles we're going to be talking about in this series apply to every relationship. And if you're married, you're going to learn how to spice up your marriage with the key ingredients that make love last. Oh, man. How much do you want to bet this is not an expository sermon? I, did anyone want to bet against me on it? You know. Now, today I want to go... I mean, could you imagine Charles Spurgeon preaching something like this? I mean, serious. Yeah, think about it. I mean... 
do you think? I mean, Spurgeon. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's pr- probably much uh, in his ministry preached the entire full counsel of the Word of God. You know, if I were to call it Phil Johnson. Uh, by the way, I'm going to be seeing Phil Johnson tomorrow. Uh, you know, I, I'll ask him tomorrow when I see him. Um, I, I'll just ask him straight up. I mean, out of all the surg- uh, surgeon Spurgeon sermons that he's uh, he's read and reviewed, did uh, Spurgeon ever give a sermon on how to spice up your marriage? Yeah. Italian. And I want to cook some homemade healthy pizza. Now, I know healthy and pizza don't really go together, but trust me with this. We're going to cook a healthy pizza. And most couples don't take the time or expend the energy to figure out what the ingredients are that go into building a healthy marriage. The greatest struggle I see in marriages today is that men and women don't understand each other. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but can I get this advice from Dr. Phil or Oprah? I mean, haven't those two done TV shows on this? And thus, they don't meet each other's deepest needs. I think most wives want to meet their husband's needs. They just don't know how. Most husbands want to meet their wives' needs, but they just don't know how. But the problem is, we think we do. We think we understand our spouse, but we really don't. Isn't the problem uh, now? Maybe I'm oversimplifying here things here, but I, I tend to do that. Uh, but uh, when I read the Bible and I see the the fact that there's tension in a marriage, it all goes back to that. Well, it goes back to the to the Book of Genesis. I mean, yeah, if you have your Bible, flip on over there. Uh, let's just take a look. Genesis chapter 3. And, you know, I think it has something to do with sin. I, I think the reason why there's problems in marriages today has something to do with sin. D- yeah, just saying. Um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Let, let's just walk through the biblical text here. This is my therapy, to, you know, so that I don't completely wig out while listening to a Carrie Shook sermon. He says, here's what the Bible says from the historical narrative recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, uh, the, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she's the one, she, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, It's the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Here in Genesis 3.15 is the promise of the Messiah. I will put enmity between you and the and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall give bring forth children. And l- listen to this. And your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Yeah, that little, you know, read the commentaries on Genesis 3.16, and you'll see that part of, uh, part of the curse is that tension in the marriage. As a result of sin, it's one of the curses. Yeah, um, so, hmm, so I think the Bible makes it clear that the reason why there are struggles in marriages it goes all the way back to the very, very, very first marriage, and that would be the marriage between Adam and Eve. And their tensions and their problems in their marriage all came about as a result of their rebellion against God and them eating of the fruit that God commanded them not to eat. But I just don't think Carrie Shook is really going to take us there. Apparently, our problem is, is that, well, we just intuitively think that we know, you know, how to solve our marital problems when we really don't. And, hmm, yeah, okay. We just understand these stereotypical surface issues, and we never go deeper to find the substance. Let me give you some examples. The first stereotype that I want to talk about is that men are unemotional. And the reality is, that's just not true. Men have powerful emotions. It's just that God wired men to be compartmentalizers, where we can compartmentalize powerful emotions and bury them deep down and move on with life. Um, yeah, um, you got some Bible passages that talk about these male compartments for our emotions. I- I'm sure it's there in the Bible somewhere. And our wives can think, how does that not bother him? You know, I'm an emotional basket case, but he just can't, seems to be moving forward. doesn't bother him at all. Because men know they need to have a tough exterior to fight life's battles. And so God wired men to be able to compartmentalize. And so we can put those powerful feelings in a little box and bury them deep down and just move on. So what you're saying is that it's okay to put your emotions in a box, but you just, just don't put God in a box. You don't want to do that. Okay. Another stereotype is that women are too emotional. But the reality is women are connectors. They're not compartmentalizers. So they can't compartmentalize those feelings. And yeah, You got any Bible verses that tell us about the female connector thing? Um, push them down. No, women have what I call emotional pop-ups going on all the time. Oh, so you call them emotional pop-ups. I, I see. Um, do you got any Bible verses that call them emotional pop-ups? Kind of like on the computer. And it just, when it comes into their mind or their heart, they have to express those emotions. They're not too emotional. They just are connectors rather than compartmentalizers. And they connect those emotions and they need to express them. And we're going to learn some things in this series, men, on how we can make our wives feel connected. Another stereotype is that men are unromantic. But the reality is most men want to be romantic. But they're hesitant in this area because they don't think they can succeed at it. And men like to feel confident and competent in anything they try. 
And if they can't feel competent, they don't try it at all. But most men want to be romantic, and we're going to learn, ladies, some things that you can do to draw out the romance. Another stereotype is that women talk too much, that they talk just to talk just to talk. Somebody said, my wife speaks 140 words a minute with gushes up to 180. It's category five, and I don't have a clue what she's saying. The reality is, though, women don't talk just to talk. They talk to connect. They want to connect. And there's some listening skills we're going to learn in this series, guys, that will help your wife feel really connected to you. Some of you guys are getting excited thinking, you mean there's some things that I can do that will cause her not to talk as much? No, I didn't say that. (laughs) I said there's things you can do to help her feel more connected to you. Another stereotype is that men are always thinking about sex. But the reality is men are always thinking about sex. Yeah. Well, there's some stereotypes that are true. Let's move on to the next one. It is true, but ladies, you need to know why. There's always deeper reasons. The sexual relationship in marriage affects his sense of well-being in every area of his life. And we're going to talk about this subject in the series because the Bible talks about it. And too many times we don't go into the deeper issues and therefore we have a lot of surface conflict. And you've got to understand what's really going on behind the conflict. Another stereotype is women aren't as interested in sex. But the reality is a woman just needs affection and connection emotionally first. Now, it is true that studies show most women are wired to crave sex less than their husbands. So, guys, you need to understand when she says no, it's not directed at you. And we're going to talk about these deeper issues in the series because if you don't understand the deeper issues, you're going to have a lot of surface conflict because you're not going to know the reasons why. You're just going to settle for the surface stereotype rather than the deeper substance. Another stereotype is men won't stop and ask for directions. And that's definitely true. But why? It's because God wired a man to have a deep need for respect. And ladies, when you tell him to stop and ask for directions... He takes that very personally because what he thinks you're saying mistakenly is, I disrespect you completely because you're an idiot and you don't know how to get from point A to B. Uh, Okay, for those of you who still suffer from that particular uh, problem, um, may I, not that I ever give marriage advice and just take it for what it's worth. This is free advice. Um, If you find yourself in that situation, ladies, May I suggest this? Guys also are wired to like gizmos and gadgets. See, if they're if you guys are lost and he doesn't want to ask for directions, then do this. Go, honey, remember that GPS that you wanted to get? I think it'd be really neat if we had a GPS. Did you want to stop by Best Buy and pick one up? I think that would be so really cool. And he would think that you're the best thing ever, you know? That's the way he takes that. And that may be the way you mean that. I don't know. But usually what you're just saying is, can we just stop and save some time? That's all you're saying. But he takes it totally wrong because he has this deep desire for respect, and he feels like you're attacking his respect. And so you've got to understand the deeper issues that are going on. When we think we know each other, but we don't take the time to figure out the ingredients that go into making up our spouse's deepest needs, we go from delivery pizza to this frozen pizza. And the marriage grows cold because all you're left with is thinking, well, he knows what my needs are. He just doesn't want to meet them. She knows what my needs are. She just doesn't want to meet them. But that's not true at all. 
What we need is not delivery pizza or frozen pizza. We need homemade pizza. We need a homemade marriage. We need to throw out all the canned ingredients and start from scratch. A custom-made marriage. And what I'm going to ask you to do during this series is throw out all your preconceived notions about your spouse's deepest needs and start from scratch. Because the problem is we know just enough to be dangerous and to cause problems. And so I'm challenging you to throw out all the canned preconceived notions, everything you think you know about. Is this in the book of relationship? I mean, where are you getting any of this? Your job, pastor, is to preach the word. Why aren't you doing that? Making homemade pizza. Your spouse or everything you think you know about the people that you're relating to and start from scratch and start thinking about the needs that are in their life. And that's what this whole series is about, the differences between men and women and understanding these deeper wirings that God has placed in our heart and what they mean. Well, I want you to look at our key verse, 1 Peter 3, 8, because we're going to see in this key verse today, a few fresh ingredients can totally change a relationship. 1 Peter 3, 8. A single, solitary, out of context verse? Do you really think, uh, Pastor Shook, that the folks in your congregation are getting a proper understanding of what's in the First Peter uh, epistle? For, um, Would you stand in honor of God's word? Oh, man. If we're going to stand for a verse. As we look at God's cookbook today. Uh, uh, and just read this out loud with me. <laughs> yeah, a verse. You're gonna, they're going to read a single solitary verse. Not the, not the whole thing. No, no, no. <laughs> you can't do that in church. Loud with me. <sighs> Finally, everyone must live in harmony, be sympathetic, love each other, have compassion, and be humble. I want you to underline. <laughs> oh, man. Did you notice uh, <clears throat> First Peter 3, 8 is the conclusion of a thought that um, the Apostle Peter was having? Uh, would you uh, like to learn a little bit about what Peter was thinking in that? I mean... Because he, I mean, he starts with the word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That's what the ESV reads. I don't know what he was reading from, but the word "finally" that should uh, tip you off to the fact that uh, Peter was in the middle of a thought here. You know, it, it, if I were to, if let's say I wrote you a letter, and at the end of the letter I wrote, and in conclusion. X, Y, or Z. You know, so that's my th- closing thought. Okay, the word words in conclusion should tip you off that I'm approaching the end of my thoughts, and that this was kind of summing up everything that I was saying. So when Peter says in First Peter three, finally, this is like this is his way of saying, and in conclusion, let me tell you, First <clears throat> Peter chapter three. Verse 1, let's uh, take a look at what Peter's thoughts were here. Uh, well, you know what? Let's uh, <clears throat> let's do this. Let's do this. Let's start at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Let's spend a little time in 1 Peter. Why not? I mean, 
<laughs> I'm trying to find a way to scrub this sermon out of my mind and a little bit of Bible in context. I mean, why not look at the whole letter? I mean, the idea here is that when Peter sent this epistle to the churches that received it, that they were to read it during church, you know, in one setting. Let's um, let's read it. <clears throat> First Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. Mm. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Who caused it? He did. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. That's a great start to the letter, don't you think? It's all about Jesus. Hmm. Okay, now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that they have, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which even the angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, through, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation." Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to do good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. But he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness." By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adoring be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, 
calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for all. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water." Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, which is not a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, that's not all of First Peter, but those are the first three chapters. And, um, hmm, Peter's sure to spend a lot of time talking about Jesus. And all of the conduct of our lives that flows from the gospel. The gospel first, Christ first, and then there are applications and implications of that gospel into how we are to conduct ourselves towards other people. And it, and it shows us the therefore of the gospel as it bears out in our life. Hmm. Somehow I think that Carrie Shook's um, taking that one, one single, solitary, little tiny verse out of context doesn't count as an ingredient in his recipe. I mean, seriously, I mean, if he likens the Bible as a recipe book, right, that's what he's calling it, right, the recipe book for, you know, a spicy romance, Um don't don't you think it's kind of odd that if the Bible's the recipe book, why is it that he's left out all of the major ingredients? In fact, the primary ingredients. I mean, have you ever heard of making bread without wheat? You know, I mean, have you ever made a pizza without a crust? I mean, is can you make pizza without a crust? Is it possible? I mean, what do you put the ingredients on? I mean, this is... If, you can't make—he says the Bible's this recipe book, and yet, for, for some strange reason, all of the primary, primary ingredients are missing. Have you ever made orange juice without oranges? Have you ever made apple juice without apple juice? How, I mean, 
I, I've never done this. Have you ever had barbecued steak without steak? I mean, have you ever had a hamburger with without meat? I mean, hmm. There's lots of things missing here in this ingredient thing. Find the word harmony in that verse and the word humble in that verse. Because to live in harmony, we have to humble ourselves enough to try to understand the person we're relating to. Now, the foundation of a pizza is the crust. And, and this is the secret to a homemade pizza. And we put the recipe on the back of your notes for this crust, my wife Chris's famous crust. Um, so I don't have time to tell you what I've gone through for the last few days to prepare this crust. <laughs> but basically, once you get the crust ready, you want to roll it out. And the goal is to make it a circle, of course. But the foundational piece of the pizza is the crust. And the foundation... Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah, I agree. Uh, why didn't you give the other foundational ingredients there from First Peter, since, I mean, you're reading from you know, First Peter 3? Of any marriage, of course, is love. So go ahead and fill that in the blanks. While oh, I see. Yeah, because the Bible teaches that the foundation of your marriage is love. Hmm. Maybe it's Christ. Rolling this crust out. It says here in Romans 12, 10, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. So everyone knows that love is a huge need for men and women, especially in a marriage relationship. But the problem is men define love in a different way than a woman does. For a man, love is defined as sexual intimacy. For the wife, it's defined as to feel treasured. Now, for every one of the ingredients of a woman's deepest need, I always put the word feel in front of it because women feel things deeply. It doesn't matter how much you love your wife. If she doesn't feel loved, it doesn't count. I love Chris with all my heart. I'd do anything for her. I'd give my life for her, of course, in an instant. But there are times where she doesn't feel loved by me. It doesn't matter how much I love Chris. If she doesn't feel it, it doesn't count. Now, this crust is the key to my pizza. And so... I've seen this in Italy, and I'm going to try it. Yeah. Oh, that didn't work. Wow. There we go. You just kind of want to get it going there and lay it out. I'm into thin crust. I don't want the crust to be too thick so it can stay healthy, <clears throat> low carb, all that kind of stuff. There we go. How about that? Now, for a woman, she wants to feel treasured. Get a look at that. That's kind of bad, isn't it? <laughs> oh, well, it's all natural there. That's good. A woman wants to feel treasured. Proverbs 31.10 says, A truly good wife is the most precious treasure a man can find. Underline the word treasure. A woman feels loved when her husband treasures her. Well, some of you guys are thinking, what does it mean to treasure her? Well, you need to ask her what it means to her to feel treasured. A woman needs to feel valued and treasured. One of the things that really helps for Chris is when I call her during the day. When I, I used to go off into my day, she would always say, call me if you're thinking about me. And I didn't think much of it. And I'm a compartmentalizer. And I'd go right into my work compartment and just totally focus on work. And then I wouldn't call her. And I just thought it was no big deal, but I found out it was a huge deal. She said, Carrie, I, it just makes me feel like you're, you don't really treasure me and I don't feel loved. And so now Every day at work, sometime during the busy part of my day, I'll just stop and call and say, honey, I'm thinking about you. I love you. And that's it. And it's a powerful thing. It's amazing when you start finding out these little ingredients, you find that little ingredients can change everything. Many times, it's something that doesn't take much effort at all, guys, to make your wife 
feel treasured. Just the little things. She says, when you call me in your busy day, I just know that you're valuing me and you treasure me. So I just make it a point to do that. Just a little call. Honey, I'm thinking about you. I love you. And it really makes her feel treasured. So for a woman, she defines love as feeling treasured. A man defines love as sexual intimacy. In 1 Corinthians 7, it says, sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. What translation are you reading? Seriously, I have, I have yet to read an entire, any passage in 1 Corinthians or any other place talking about sexual disorders. What on earth? Ugh. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. And wives, you need to understand that sexual fulfillment is a God-given need in your husband. But it's interesting. If the man is making his wife feel treasured, then she feels more like meeting his need for sexual fulfillment. But it becomes a vicious cycle where the man is not meeting the woman's need to feel treasured, so the woman doesn't feel like meeting his needs, so he really doesn't feel like meeting her needs, and then she really doesn't feel like meeting his needs. But the Bible says that the husband is the one who's to step forward and take the lead to make his wife feel treasured. And you have to come to the place, husbands, where you say, I'm gonna make her feel treasured whether she meets my needs or not. And that's a supernatural, unselfish love, and it's the love that God wants to give you for your wife, where you say, I'm gonna make her feel treasured. And we're going to talk more about this in the series, so I won't get into this too much today. Hang on a second here. Um, I, I, need a, <clears throat> I need a testosterone break. Um, <laughs> listen to the haka dance from uh, the, news, the Tonga all-black rugby team. Yeah, that'll help. Okay, that got it out of my system. Wow. Yeah, sorry, folks. <laughs> I just needed a testosterone break there. <laughs> I was feeling my testosterone just draining out of my body listening to the sermon. Sorry. But the second ingredient that I want to use on the pizza, my misshaped pizza here, is the special sauce. Now, you notice that I didn't give you the recipe for the sauce because this is a secret family sauce that I don't really want to give away. It's kind of the key to the whole pizza. Um, you can get it from ragu, probably, but um, <laughs> but otherwise, it's very secret. Now, I don't really like to use a lot of sauce. I don't know about you, but I'm one of those who likes to put a lot of fresh ingredients on the pizza with not a whole lot of sauce. So we're not going to put a lot of sauce into that. But the second shared need of husbands and wives is security. Proverbs three twenty six says, "For the Lord is your security." Underline the Lord. I want to point out right at the beginning of this series that only the Lord can meet your deepest needs. These needs like love and security, purpose and fulfillment and happiness, all these needs we're talking about, only the Lord can meet these deepest needs. But he wants to use you in the life of your spouse to help meet those needs. Now, if you're just looking to a person to meet those deepest needs, you're going to be disappointed. It's going to put too much stress and pressure on that person. 
they're going to fail. There's no way they can do that. They can't fill God's shoes. But when you look to God to meet the deepest needs, it frees your spouse up to really work at meeting your needs. God wants to use you in the life of your spouse to meet those needs, but he wants you to look to him first. And I want to say that at the beginning of the series. Well, for a man, he defines security as encouragement. Men need encouragement. For a woman, she defines security as to feel protected. See, every woman is a little girl who longs to be a princess and wants a knight in shining armor to protect her. But she'll settle for a knight in rusty armor. That's okay, too. Just anyone to protect her. She wants a husband, even if she's the major breadwinner in the family, she wants a husband to make her feel protected emotionally. Someone said money talks, but emotional security sings for a woman. She wants a man to protect her. Now, what does that mean, emotional protection? It means different things for different women. But I know for most women, it means that she wants a man who'll get into the family and really fight for the family. He'll really be engaged in the family and fight battles for the family just like he fights at work. Well, a man needs encouragement. He wants encouragement. That's what security means to him. Women usually think that a man's ego is huge, but the reality is a man's ego is the most fragile thing on the planet. <laughs> hey, hey, hang on. I, I need a, a, another testosterone bake. Maybe, maybe the sound of some motorcycles will help. Hang on a second here. I can continue now. Most men are terribly insecure no matter how successful they are. On the outside, they have a tough exterior, but on the inside, they feel like an imposter. Look at Colossians 3.18. It says, wives, understand and support your husbands. So important for wives to affirm and encourage their husband. That gives the man security. He needs encouragement. I, I know for me, after I preach a message, the first person I go to is my wife. And I say, honey, what'd you think? And she always says the same thing. Carrie, that was powerful. That was awesome. God really used you. And whether she thinks it or not, she always says that because she knows I'm very vulnerable. I've just poured my guts out and shared my heart. And she knows that I need encouragement. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter how many people may say, hey, good job. It doesn't matter how many pats on the back you get, husbands. What you're really looking for is your wife to encourage you. You've got to have your wife encourage you. Husbands, you know what I'm saying is so true, don't you? doesn't matter what anyone else says at work. All that matters is what you say, wives. Your affirmation and your encouragement mean so much to him. For security for a woman is to feel protected. Security for a man is encouragement. Now, what I want to do now is add the toppings to the pizza, and I want to put this cheese, and this is a special cheese that I've been making for the last two years in my fromagerie, but um, I like cheese on a pizza, and I know it's not real healthy, but I like to put a lot of cheese. I'm probably more into the cheese than I am the tomato sauce. And then the thing that's kind of special for the Shook pizza is oregano. I love oregano, and I like to put quite a bit of it. I'm not even sure what this is, but anyway, we'll take some of that oregano off. There you go. Some okay, I got to stop again. got to stop again. Hang on a second. I found a video on YouTube with the NASCAR crashes. Hang on, maybe we'll watch a little NASCAR. That'll help out here. I don't know. I don't think he can step out until he waits till the last second and picks he up. He goes to the outside. Is Edwards going to oh, pull his own? And he turns it. No. No, man. Oh, and that no. destroyed the front end of Newman's car. No. Edwards will not make it to the flag. Oh, Brad. 
this race. Okay. Okay, I think I can make it. Hang I can go a little farther. Hang on. Lucky person is going to get this pizza at the end of the service. Um, vegetables are what I like to focus on. We'll call this the Shook Supreme, but I like a lot of black olives, um, bell peppers. And I'm telling you, you can make a pizza that's really healthy. And it really does start with the crust. Um, a little bit of feta cheese. I don't like to put too much feta cheese, but just a little bit. Pretty strong, but I like feta. can put a little Parmesan if you want. Not much. Artichoke hearts, add a little tang to it. So we put a few artichoke hearts in there. Now, I don't like, I'm not going to put on this one pepperonis or anything like that. I'm gonna, ah, ah, I can't do it anymore. Hang on a second here. I, maybe this will help. Uh, maybe that guy at the beginning of the boxing matches. Here. Tonight, we are going to witness the most anticipated match in the history of professional wrestling for the heavyweight championship of the world. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. Wrestling fans, are you ready? For the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world, from the capital city of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! Yeah! Yeah! Okay. Whew. Okay. Semi-testosterone fix there. I, I can go a little farther. Hold on. I stick to vegetables. I'll tell you what I will do, though. Canadian bacon is a little bit leaner than the pepperoni. I hate it when you get a pizza and you have to put a lot of napkins on it just to soak up the grease. You know, that's, that's not a good thing. So we're not going to have a lot of grease. We're going to use some Canadian bacon. And, and the presentation is the key. <laughs> hey, it may look ugly, but it tastes good. But we probably want to put a little more artichokes to, t to kind of take the sting out of the oregano. How about that? Um, and then we'll go from there. All right, let's put this in the oven and see what happens. Yeah. There we go. It's going to start smelling really good. But let's get into the most important things here. And that is the third shared need between husbands and wives is companionship. Ah! Okay. Okay. Oh, man. I don't know if I can make it. Hang on a second here. Maybe a scene from Gladiator will help out. Hang on. Hang on. I think, I think this might help me for a second. Three weeks from now, I will be harvesting my crops. Imagine where you will be, and it will be so. Hold the line. Stay with me. You find yourself alone, riding in green fields with the sun on your face. Do not be troubled. Well, you are in Elysium, and you're already dead! <laughs> Brothers, what we do in life, what we do in life, echoes in eternity. eternity. Okay, just refilled there, a little bit of gladiator, that, that'll help, okay. 
Let's dive back into the sermon. I think I can make it. Wait, this next verse says, And the Lord God said, It isn't good for man to be alone. I will make a companion for him, a helper suited to his needs. Underline the word suited to his needs. It's God's design in marriage that husbands and wives complement each other, but instead most husbands and wives are competing with each other. But companionship is the key. But companionship for a man is respect. Look at 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, similarly, you husbands should try to understand the wives you live with. Honor them as physically weaker, yet equally heirs with you of the grace of eternal life. Saying they may be weaker physically, but you're the same spiritually. And you're on the same team. You're companions. You're in it together. Marriage is not 70-30 or 50-50. Marriage is 100% and 100%. Each spouse giving 100% and your companions, you're a team. Now, underline the phrase there, try to understand. This is real important because, okay, I can't do it. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Maybe a little Braveheart. This might help me out here. Hang on a second. That William Wallace speech. Let's see if this helps me out. Hang, hang on. Where is thy salute for presenting yourselves on this battlefield? I give you thanks. This is our army. To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army... Why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them. Oh, the English are too many. Sons of Scotland, I am William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. He kills men by the hundred. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. <laughs> I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as three men. And three men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Fight against that? No. We will run. And we will live. Die. Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! I just want to need it. Okay, I can get, get back through the sermon here. here. The good news, guys, is you don't have to understand your wife. You just need to try to understand her. If you try to understand her, you'll feel connected, and she'll feel connected. When I finally learned this from God's Word, it took a lot of pressure off me because Chris really doesn't care if I understand her, but she does want me to try to understand her. All I have to do is try to understand her, and the way I try to understand her is to listen to her, and whenever I listen to her, I need to listen with my eyes. She knows when I'm not really listening, I'm just hearing. She knows when I'm not really connecting. 
And the way you connect is you listen with your eyes, and then you listen with your heart. And this is hard for me to do because I'm a fixer. Most men are naturally fixers. And so when your wife's carrying on a conversation with you and she's saying, this is going on and this is going on, she's jumping from this thing to that thing to this thing all the way over to that thing. She's a connector and she connects it all together. And you're a compartmentalizer and you're trying to solve this problem in your mind and she's already moved over to another problem. And usually what I try to do is I, I just get frustrated and I say, honey, just do this, this, and this and it'll solve it. She doesn't want me to solve anything, and I've since learned that she just wants me to listen. And, and I have to look past the problems and look at her heart. Shanta Feldman puts it this way. Instead of filtering out her emotions to focus on the problem, learn to filter out the problem to focus on her feelings. What we guys do is we filter. <gasps> Hang on a second here. I think I found some monster truck footage. Hang on. Let's see if this helps. was incredible that was the grave digger ryan anderson doing a backflip <laughs> let me see if i can watch that again hang on here ah, okay i think i can get back to this hang on filter out her feelings and just focus in on the problem we're going to solve it but what we really need to do is focus on her feelings. Just filter out the problem, forget about the problem, and just focus on her and connect with her because that's all she wants. And it takes the pressure off when you understand that. It's not hard to do. She just wants connection. Companionship for her means to feel connected. Listening and caring does that. For him, companionship is respect. He has a God-given need for respect. They asked a thousand men recently, would you rather be disrespected or unloved? And 90-something percent of the men said, I would much rather be unloved. I don't care if you love me. I don't care if you like me. Just respect me. I need to be respected. They asked the same question to women, and 90-something percent of women said, I'd much rather be disrespected. I can't imagine being unloved. I have to be loved. And God has always told us this. The amazing thing about God's cookbook is he's always shared with us all the ingredients that it takes to meet your spouse's deepest needs. Look at Ephesians 5.33. And Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins and uh, the understanding that all of our problems come out as a result of our sinful nature, seems to be the major missing ingredient here. But every husband must love his wife as he loves himself, and wives should respect their husbands. Underline love and underline respect. See, God's always told us this, that the wife needs to feel loved and treasured, her deepest need, and the husband needs to feel respected. Those are some of the ingredients that it takes, but the problem is we're always on these surface stereotypes. We don't go to the deeper substance, and we don't understand the whys of why our husband acts this way, why our wife acts this way, and that's what we're gonna do in this series. And I just wanna encourage you that it's the little things that can change everything. It's the small ingredients that can change a whole marriage. Ruth Ryan, the wife of Hall of Fame pitcher Nolan Ryan, talks about it in her book, Covering Home, and she writes, it probably happened the first time on the high school baseball diamond in Alvin, Texas in the mid-1960s. Then it happened repeatedly for three decades after that. Nolan Ryan, that's an idea. Hey, the Albert Pujols Grand Slam home run from a few years ago comes to mind. That was, you know... That was- Woo-hoo! <laughs> 
Yeah, I got to love those Grand Slam home runs. <sighs> we continue. Inevitably, sometime during a game, Nolan would pop up out of the dugout and scan the stands behind home plate looking for me. He would find my face and grin at me, maybe snapping his head up in a quick nod as if to say, there you are, I'm glad. I'd wave and flash him a smile, then he'd duck under the roof and turn back to the game. It was a simple moment, never noted in record books or career summaries, but of all the moments and all the games, including the no-hitters, it was the one most important to me. It's the little things that make a huge difference. I believe that most husbands want to meet their wife's deepest needs. They just don't know how. And most wives want to meet their husband's deepest needs. They just don't know how. But we're gonna learn how. And I want you to commit for the next several weeks to start from scratch. And let's do homemade marriage. Don't need a crucified and risen Savior for this. Yeah, then Christ and him crucified is supremely missing. And in fact, like purposely omitted. Hey, speaking of homemade, let's see how our pizza came out. It looks pretty good. All right. Yeah. How about that? What do you think? I think you should have been opening the Bible and actually preaching the word in context, sir. Did I hit a home run? No, you fouled out. Doesn't look very good, but it's going to taste great. I can tell you that. I want us right now to bow our heads, and as we start this series, let's just open our hearts up to God to help us start from scratch in our relationships. Lord, we come. Done, done, done. Yeah, I was able to make it after inserting all that manly stuff into the sermon that was missing, including the entire, well, not the entire, but large sections, three chapters of 1 Peter. Yeah, Pastor, if you don't want to drive the men out of your congregation and have them leave screaming um, or feeling like they need to go and, you know, just, you know, spend some time detoxing after church, preach God's word to them. Tell them about Christ and him crucified for our sins. Give them sound biblical doctrine in context and what God's word really teaches. And stop doing this pop psychology stuff in the name of being relevant because all you're doing is taking the Word of God and diluting it so badly that people don't, at the end of it, actually know what it says. And that it's all about Christ. And the good news of our crucified and risen Savior never really seems to shine through in sermons like this because these kinds of sermons, they're all about us. They're not about Jesus. You want to make it so the men in your church are men? And they and they they don't think church is some place that they need to go and flee from or you have to drag them to. Pastors preach the word. I guarantee you, men will show up. Man. Anyway, now that now that we're done, I'm gonna sign off and go hit the punching bag or something. You know, hit, hit the gym or do something manly to get this out of my mind. Oh man, every time I do a Carrie Shook sermon. Every single time, I just want to leave the studio screaming. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. 
Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Pastors, preach the word and stop doing the silly stuff. Amen. Amen.